reading that we're going to visit in a minute is from the Gospel of John, and it's actually part of chapter 7. But in the Table Bible, you're going to see that it starts with number 8 there, chapter 8, and it starts with verse 53. Now, the reason this has changed is that scholarship and archaeology over the last 10, 15 years, longer than that really, has discovered that this particular story is not found in the original uh, texts that are often used for the translations to the Bible. So all that means is, is it might not be part of the original Gospel of John. Seems very unlikely. But that isn't to say the story isn't true, and it doesn't mean that this story doesn't have tremendous value for us. So if you look in some Bibles, you'll see that note, earliest manuscripts do not include this. That's what we do know, and this is part of how the whole canon of Scripture was birthed, is that the story is clearly indicative of Jesus' character, personality, and it certainly demonstrates really well what happens when people try to trap Jesus. So just keep that in mind, but get ready. We'll visit that in just a minute. But first, a few words about this week's uh, theme. So this week we're going to talk about forgiveness. It's going to be the week of forgiveness. But let's finish the week of being with a couple of observations. So how'd that go for you? How's this week of being served you and served the Lord over the last uh, seven to ten days or so? Being is is something that takes discipline, doesn't it? You know, uh, I think I read it in day eight or nine of Zach Sender's book, the one that we're using. And um, he said that a certain guy did research around the world and he interviewed Christians all over. And he found that about 60% of Christians said that they just don't have time for being in the presence with God, that they just get sidetracked so easily by all of their busyness and activity. And so being is an act of discipline and worship. And I would even say it's a kind of fasting. I mean, if fasting is giving up something that you take for granted and depend on every day uh, to sort of order your life, whether it's food or other things, and you intentionally sacrifice that for a time so that you can be more uh, into the spirit and experiencing God's presence, then that's a fast. So one of the things that was part of this big, uh, week of being was to try a fast. Some of you, I imagine, did try a literal food fast. And uh, I'd be curious to hear how that went for you. But also, you know, maybe you gave up something else. You know, maybe you just said, today, Lord, I'm going to turn off the devices. I'm going to put away the things that I do routinely, especially when I'm bored. Can you imagine that? I don't know about you, but I find myself doing things when I'm bored. And you think, well, how could I get bored? I'm so busy. Well, you know, that's a funny thing. Sometimes you've got to take a break from the busyness. And you're right on the cusp of being ready to go back to it. And then you get in that moment, right? That spot where you want to do something, but you really don't want to work, right? And so there's your moment right there. And so it's a sort of fast to decide to intentionally seek time with the Lord. So I, I hope that you will continue, that you recognize that these five topics that we're gleaning from the red letters of the Bible, that these five things are not independent of each other. So we're not going to stop 
the week of being so that we can start the week of forgiving, you're going to find, I think, by the time we're done this morning, that forgiving is entirely dependent on your being. And so these things build on each other. Continue the practices that we call being and experience the heart and mind of God in your heart and mind. So the five things, just for the reminder here, is uh, being, forgiving, serving, giving, and going, right? Being, forgiving, serving, giving, and going. And that's where we're headed with this. And today we're talking about forgiveness. So in order to get to the topic of forgiveness today, I want you to prepare your minds right now by thinking first of a couch. Think about a couch that you have. We have a couch in our basement that used to be in my parents' house. It was beautiful back then. And now it's in our basement and it's mostly occupied by my German Shepherd, okay? But from a distance, it's a nice looking couch. Do you have a couch like that? A piece of furniture in your house like that? It looks pretty nice overall. And that's what we'll talk about in a minute. Then I want you to imagine the temple in Jerusalem the best you can. Doesn't matter if you've been there or not. Just, just picture in your mind the surroundings in Jerusalem around Mount Zion and the temple. And then I want you to picture a courtroom. You can either picture one that you've been in or one that uh, you saw on TV, whatever. Just imagine a courtroom. These are three places we're going to go in the next few minutes, but let's get back to the couch. So we have a couch in our basement that I moved to a certain place in our basement so that our company wouldn't be as tempted to sit on it because the dog owns it. But you can sit on it. It's still fairly comfortable and it's still pretty to look at, but chances are if you came over to visit me, I'd probably try to clean it up for you or throw a blanket over it or something before you sit down on it. And so we have things like that in our lives, right? We have, we have, we have cars where the driver's seat is, you know, pretty clean because we get in and out of it all the time. And you look over at the back, passenger seat, you look at the back seat and you go, oh my gosh, you know, what a mess. So the point of the couch analogy is, is that if you came over to my house and you sat on my couch, you'd say it looks tolerable. You wouldn't be afraid to sit on it. But if you dropped your keys between the cushions or your phone and you got up and we started pulling the cushions off so we could find your keys, right about then somebody would say, you, right? Come on, let's be honest. You take the cushions off that couch, what you're going to see is probably just two steps above disgusting, right? Whether you have a dog or not, you know, you're going to find crumbs that who knows where they came from. You're going to find dust, dirt, hair. You know, the fact is, is we're kind of flaky, us people, and there's plenty of that stuff that's probably dead skin and dandruff and who knows what else. And, and it's just gross. And so on the surface, that darn couch looked pretty nice, but boy, as soon as you take the cushions off, it's kind of scary. Well, I don't know about you, but what we would do at that moment, my wife is perfect at this because she can be really impulsive about cleaning, and she'll just take one look at that and go, ah, and whatever she was doing is gone. The, the, the next step is to the uh, vacuum cleaner. And you're going to get that vacuum cleaner out, and you're going to sweep and clean that thing until you can stand it again, right? That's what most of us do. Well, you could probably imagine where this analogy is going because 
in our lives, whether we're dealing with Christians or non-Christians, whether we're dealing with a setting like this or whether we're dealing with the setting where we work or, or where we shop or where we eat out or whatever, we're dealing with people that we see on the surface and they look okay. You see uniforms, you see appropriate dress for the environment, you see people who are providing a service or joining you in providing a service in some way they're fulfilling a role and they're meeting expectations and that's what you see you know and if you stop and think about most of the relationships you have they're superficial most of the people you know you have a pretty superficial relationship with them sometimes you get led into the more private things but but you really don't know what's under the cushions do you I mean, let's be honest, they don't know what's under your cushions either. We have a lot of relationships where we're going by what we see on the surface, but we're not dumb. We know that there's more going on. We just don't need to know. You know, sometimes it's better to leave the cushions on there and just sit comfortably, right? And, and so that's where this couch analogy comes from, is that all of us are like that couch. We are acceptable on the surface, sometimes even nice looking and, and well put together and, and, and in those relationships people have with us are fairly comfortable, but we don't want them to see what's under the cushions and we don't really want to know what's under their cushions, right? And what's more, if we could expose what's under the cushions of our lives or they expose theirs, there's no filter queen, Kirby, Hoover, Eureka, and whatever the latest, greatest vacuum cleaner is, Shark, Dyson, none of them are going to be able to clean you the deep, clean way that you need to be cleaned. You know, what's under the surface on you, not even Stanley Steamer can get out. This is the nature of the thing. So that takes us to our next story, and this one requires us to read from Scripture. So now you're looking at your Bible at... Uh, what is essentially chapter seven, verse 53 to eight, 11, but what it'll look like in most of your Bibles is chapter eight. So here's what it says. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
So I want you to picture the setting of this story. It's outside the temple. It's uh, almost certain to be in a place called the Teaching Steps. The ones who've been to Israel with me on past trips will know this spot because you sat there and listened to the guide teach you. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a place that's pretty certain to be what it purports to be wherever the temple actually turned out to be. But you're in the shadow of the temple. And remember that the temple is the place where people go to atone for their sin. Just keep that in the back of your head. People go to the temple to atone for their sin. They know they're sinners, and they make these acts of worship a part of atoning for their sins so that they might be righteous in the eyes of God through the atoning sacrifices that they bring to the temple. So keeping that in mind, and keeping in mind how people like being around the temple because it makes them feel close to God, here's the setting where they bring this woman to test Jesus. Now keep in mind that this woman is of no particular consequence to those people. She's a means to an end. She was probably well known in the community for her uh, dalliances and so were the men who knew her. But nobody dragged them over to get stoned, did they? That's kind of sad and sick in a way. But they dragged her because, well, she was convenient and it was going to be a way to see if they could trap Jesus. And this is one of the ways that we know that whether this appears in the old manuscripts or not, it's a story that sounds right on about Jesus. And so the next thing we have to think about is, is what was he writing in the dirt? You know, everybody, I, there are books written. I mean, you can go to the, the Christian bookstore, you can go to the place where, where clergy get their books to go to school and everything. And there are books written about what Jesus wrote in the sand. And honestly, I don't think it matters that much or it would have been in there. If it was important, they would have told us. So we just have to guess at what he wrote. Now, one side of me says, you know, I've been a parent and, and, you know, sometimes your kids come to you with these petty, ridiculous arguments and you love them and you're hoping there might be an object lesson that's gonna result from this interaction, but mostly you're just sitting there going, well, when they get it off their chests, we'll see if we can get something good out of it for them, you know, because it's just silly. It's the kind of thing, you know, he looked at me, right? Come on, parents, you know what that's like. You're trying to broker a debate between your children over who looked at who first and what kind of look it was. Maybe that would make you just sort of piddle with your phone until they're done talking. So I don't know, maybe Jesus was doing that, right? Another suggestion comes from Zach Zender, the author of the book we've been using for this Red Letter Challenge. He says, maybe Jesus was writing the names of all the accusers in the sand and then using a one word definition of their best sin, <laughs> you know. I, that's an interesting idea, but we'll just never know. I mean, for all we know, he was drawing a picture of a boat on the Sea of Galilee or something. I, who knows, right? But here's the thing. When he spoke, as Jesus always does, this is why it's such a worthy thing to read the red letters in your Bible. He spoke with such authority and with such succinctity, succinctness. I don't know how to say that, but what's that? succinctness. My word nerd daughter tells me it's succinctness. And so what does he say so plain and simple? Anyone here would, not guilty of sin? Anyone here without sin? Hello? Anyone? Anyone? Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> Anyone? You know? And then they just, he goes back to doodling and they disappear. And here's what it says that's really something we should take home. The older ones first. Now, I gotta be honest with you. I've known 18-year-old 
Christians who were way more spiritually mature and older in the spirit than some 90-year-olds that I've known. So age, literal age, doesn't always factor in when it comes to your Christian journey because there's a spiritual maturity that transcends your calendar age. But I will say that this takes time to tell us that the older ones walked away first. They didn't need much prompting to realize how foolish they were. Remember, they're standing in the shadow of the temple, the place where you go to atone for your sin. In other words, they know there's no distinction between Jews and Christians on this one. Everybody knows they're sinners who need redemption. They just live in a culture where they take care of that themselves, where they bring sacrifices according to the rules that they've been trained to follow and they atone for their sin. So they know they're sinners. There's no question about that. Guess what? The woman they caught and grabbed and brought to them, those women, that kind of woman knows her sin too. There's no mistaking her sin. She knows she's guilty. Somewhere in her mind, there's this self-destructive tendency that says, I probably had this coming a long time ago. And so there's a certain kind of resolve that goes with that. The ones I feel sorry for are those men that she was with, and I also feel really sorry for the ones who brought her as a way to trap Jesus. That means that they saw no value in her at all. She was of no consequence to anyone who used and abused her. Right up till that moment, no one cared about her at all. The older ones, they probably never picked up rocks in the first place. They were just waiting to see how this played out and they disappeared. But slowly, all of them started dropping their rocks and walking away. And here's another thing, by the way, us older Christians, we have a God-given responsibility to set a good example for the younger ones. Because I wonder how quickly the younger ones would have walked away if they hadn't lost the support of their elders. But they saw their elders walk away and they thought, uh-oh, he's got us. And they're not even going to challenge him. You know, in Christian and Jewish culture, we revere our elders. We respect our elders. The world doesn't respect elders. The world doesn't care about people who aren't beautiful and handsome and who aren't showy and you know meeting whatever requirements are necessary to have 15 minutes of fame on TikTok or whatever. I mean, the, the world doesn't care how old you are, but Christians and Jews do. And those, those people, they realized when their elders backed away that they better do the same. So we elders, we have a responsibility to the young. Now, in my mind's eye, this is not scriptural because it's not there in the text, but in my mind's eye, I've always pictured Jesus with a rock in his hand when he looks at the woman and says, where did the accusers go? Jesus has a rock in his hand. Why do I picture him with the rock in his hand? Because he said, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. Now, this isn't in there, but I just think that he has, if anyone has the authority to throw a rock at her, it's Jesus right? And then he drops his stone and he says, I don't accuse you either. You are forgiven. Let it go. You know what I mean? Like, like to me, that rock is just this beautiful image in my mind. And so what's happened in this setting 
outside the temple, the place where people go to atone for their sin, is the one who can atone for everybody's sin through his own life. You see what he did for her is what he's done for us. She was worthy of and guilty under the penalties prescribed in the law of Moses. Who gave Moses the law? God the Father, and that's Jesus the Son, who is the same Spirit, the same one who authored the law that Moses prescribed for the people, and he let her off. Okay, just keep that in mind. Why do you suppose he did that? Well, here again, in my mind, I read between the lines, I see him dropping the rock, and then I realized that what he was probably saying as he stood there or sat there in that place is, won't be long, I will pay your debt. I will die the death that you owe the law. She was guilty, she knew it. The others were guilty, but they had to be reminded. And sadly, those men who abused her probably still, you know, didn't know. So the reason he let her off is because he knew he was going to take the penalty of death that she owed the law and the author of the law. Now, next scenario. Let's imagine that courtroom. Have you pictured it in your mind? Maybe you like Perry Mason or maybe you like some new courtroom procedural or something. Uh, maybe you've been like, like me and served as a juror or something like that. Picture the courtroom. Zach Zender is the one whose story we're going to tell now. Zach is, as I said, the author of the Red Letter Challenge book. Zach tells about a day when, for whatever reason, he was handpicked not once but twice in 24 hours. No, 13 hours. I now remember I told it wrong in the first service. He was picked 13 hours. Within 13 hours, he was pulled over twice by the same police officer and ended up with three tickets. So the evening before he was coming home from a church meeting that he was tired and exasperated by and he drove a little too fast in his neighborhood and the police officer pulled him over and gave him a ticket. The next morning, he's going back to work. He gets pulled over by the same guy because he breezed through a stop sign and then that guy notices that his registration's out of date. So he gets three tickets totaling a pretty steep fine. Now, I could relate to this on one level for sure, and probably on all levels, but let's just first accept the fact that this is a guy who, if you've been watching the videos, you can see that he's younger than me, and he has children that are still in grade school, and, well, you know, Laura and I raised five kids, and when they were all living in the parsonage, all five of them, and all five in grade school or middle school, and, and you know, it was tough to make ends meet. Preacher's income doesn't go very far on a good day. It really doesn't go far when your wife can't work because we have two children with disabilities and we're raising these children uh, basically living on our ministry income and the equity I'd stored up from a home that I'd owned before going into ministry. So, so I know what this is like and I know what it would have been like to get socked with $1,200 worth of fines. <laughs> like, I can't pay this. I can't pay this. And I know for a fact there's not a person in this room with a driver's license who hasn't breezed through a stop sign, exceeded the speed limit, and maybe got a little sloppy with the record keeping and the stickers that they're supposed to put on their license plates and things like that. So, 
Let's all agree that we can relate to Pastor Zach. Now, here's his dilemma. He is repentant because he knew he was guilty. You know, see, that's the thing. I want to give police officers a break here. Police officers just doing a job because we're all supposed to be accountable. And if we're honest, a lot of us get irritated behind the wheel because we see people who don't think they're accountable doing things that we try not to do except sometimes, <laughs> right? And police officers got every right to pull you over and give you a ticket if you violate the law. And you can't argue with them. You're guilty. You know it. So here's what Zach says he did. Zach, being a pastor, I can relate to this too. He had an attorney in his congregation and he went to that attorney and he said, hey, Look at this jam I've gotten myself in. You got any ideas? And the attorney says, here, let me have those. I'll take care of that for you. And Zach says, okay. Well, as the story goes, and, and in my notes, this is more condensed, but <laughs> he, the way he tells the story is kind of is humorous because he says, he says that on the day of his hearing, he's sitting on pins and needles this whole morning, you know, waiting to find out how this turned out because he doesn't know how he's going to pay this fine if he gets leveled at him. And, and, and apparently this, this, uh, this attorney in his congregation, like some of my friends in this church, not naming anybody, George, but some of us are likely to do something like this. The attorney sends him a message and he said, well, the police officer that pulled you over is here and he is really out to get you. <laughs> so for a couple more hours, old Zach's sitting on pins and needles, uh, you know, and, and, and a rash is breaking out. He is upset, right? And then after lunch sometime, the attorney calls him up and he says, hey, I got good news for you. You're off the hook. The officer never showed up. I mean, well, what about that message you sent me? Ah, I was just joking. <laughs> right? And so it's a great story. It's a great story. Except he was guilty. He, he owed, you, I know this is a really broad concept for uh, us young people especially, but, but I was raised to think that when a law officer upheld the law, he was doing it on my behalf. I mean, I, I, just, I don't want to digress too far here, but I just want to say that, that you know, when, when you are guilty of a crime, uh, because the police officer has caught you and you've been convicted and you've been sentenced to a certain kind of punishment, whether it's a ticket that requires paying or jail time or whatever, it's a crime against society. I mean, you, you're guilty because you sinned against me, right? I mean, that's the truth. You ran the stop sign, which put me at risk if I happened to be there too. And so when we think along those lines, we realize that, that what happened to Zach was is that he was held to a standard we should all be held to and he had to pay the price for not doing so. Now that's a totally different way to look at the law than the way most of us do, especially traffic laws. Because we say it ain't a law unless there's cop around and then it's only bad if you get caught. Well, that's a crazy way to look at something that's designed for the common good. Just saying. And there is a relationship between that law and the law of God because the law of God requires us to pay the penalty for our transgressions. And people will say, well, God's all about love. He's not going to send anybody to hell. I've heard people say that. I have heard preachers say that. 
This is, this is where you get into the far left and the far right of Christianity. On the far right, you've got the sanctimonious accusers of the woman they brought to Jesus. And on the far left, you got people that say, ah, God's all love and kisses and nobody's going to be punished. That's not how God rolls. And you know what? They're both wrong because grace resides in the middle. And that means that it's equal parts discipline and equal parts love. And you know why the discipline is so important? Because of what we were just talking about. Because you see, if God doesn't punish sin, then what justification do we have for trying not to sin? And what's worse, believe me, this is far worse because he doesn't have to care about us. We've already turned against him if in our nature, thanks be to Adam. But he cares about his son. He will hold you accountable for sin because his son paid such a high price to obtain your forgiveness. And if he doesn't judge and condemn those who reject him, and more than that, reject his son, then what point was there for Jesus to pay that price in the first place? See, when we break the law, we're actually violating our relationship with each other as much as we're violating our relationship with the governance of the law giver. See what I mean? That's why we have to make right with God because we're guilty. Zach knew he was guilty. He knew he owed this debt. He had no question in his mind about that. He just saw an impossible situation where he wasn't going to be able to pay the price. So in this instant, his advocate went before the judge on his behalf and represented him to the judge. Now that analogy holds up to a point because the one thing our advocate does that his didn't, our advocate says he's guilty and it doesn't matter whether his accuser is here or not. We know that you being God, the judge of all, are very aware of what makes him guilty. And so Jesus, our advocate says to God, the father, his dad, I'll pay his debt. Like he did with that woman. Jesus said, I'm going to let you off because she owed the price of her life to fulfill the law of Moses. And she knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody there knew it. But he gave her a break because he has this intention that she didn't know about where he's going to die on her behalf. So your advocate goes before the judge pleads your case saying something like, I know he's guilty. I know she's guilty. You know she's guilty. You know he's guilty, but I'm asking you to forgive him. And what's more, I'll pay their price. I'll pay their debt. I'll die the death that you require from them. I will pay the penalty. That changes everything. That is a game changer because forgiveness starts with forgiving yourself. And if we're honest, most of us are living a script that we got when we were young 
and it was all part of our survival strategy, but as we have grown older and taken more responsibility for our lives and for our thoughts and our ideas, and, and that's a redundant, but you know, we are responsible for who we are becoming. And we're still trying to do it within the script that was given to us when we were not responsible for that. And that was all about surviving your environment. And I know we could grow up in very positive environments, but we still learn how to live within the environment that we are raised in, whether that's social because of where we go to school, whether that's neighborhood-wise, whether that's your home life, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so first thing we have to learn to do is forgive ourselves. You got to forgive yourself for all the things that you've owned that really aren't true. You've been told by your circumstances what to believe about yourself. Jesus has a whole new narrative. He looks at you like he looks at that woman they caught and said, here's an idea. Accept the gift of forgiveness that I'm purchasing with my blood and go live a new paradigm. Try something totally different. Imagine that. How many of us really do that? How many of us are still trying to be whatever we came out of our childhood thinking we were supposed to be, and in a way, putting some false god that might be a parent or, a, or an idea or a crazy ideology. I mean, you know, I was listening to uh, Philip Yancey the other day, and he's a terrific Christian author, and what's really amazing is I had no idea he grew up in such a messed up situation. <laughs> And in the name of Jesus messed up. That's what's crazy. You know, he went to a church that was really racist in the South and it was all in the name of Jesus. And like this guy, he found a new paradigm, for example. And so here's, here's the point. Whether it's the old couch with all the crud under the cushions, whether you are guilty and you know it and your accusers have had to own their own guilt, whether you're in the courtroom and you've got a fine to pay that you cannot afford to pay, you need someone who can deep clean your couch for you. And here's the kicker. He can't sit on that couch with you until he cleans it. All right, let's just cover that for a second. You want Jesus to sit with you in your house and be that much a part of your life? He can't sit on your couch till he deep cleans it. I'm being metaphorical here. He can't reside with you until you accept the cleansing that we heard in the opening songs that comes from his blood. The deep cleaning that makes us pure enough to be in the presence of our creator. We can't start a new paradigm until we put behind us the sanctimonious voices of the past that have told us who we are and why we'll never be good enough or why we'll never be able to accomplish what we would love to be able to accomplish. We have to put all that behind us. We have to dismiss all the sinners who, like us, are broken and trying their best to survive and somehow that has spilled over onto us and created a script we don't need to play by anymore. And it begins by realizing that you're guilty before God 
and you've got to stand before the judge while your advocate represents you by paying your penalty and gaining your innocence. And at that moment, you're free. You're free to begin a life like you've never known. You're free to become whatever God intends you to become. And and you're free of all the scripts of the past because you can write a new one now. Jesus can write a new one for you. I usually don't preach this feel-good stuff, but man, this is just too too doggone good to miss. You gotta see this. You gotta see that this is what the real abundant life that we're talking about when we use that term in Christianity. It's not about gold furniture, poofy hair, and a lot of expensive things. That's not life in abundance. That's slavery to public image. I'm gonna show people how good it is to be a Christian by showing them that God enhances our wealth. (laughs) That's absurd. He sees a sinner who deserves the punishment the law prescribes and he forgives you. He sees other sinners pointing their fingers at you because it's a way to sort of put off how bad they feel about themselves by categorizing sin and agreeing as a group or a mob that yours is worse than everybody else's. He sees that and he sets it right. He cancels the script that was the past and he gives you new life so that you can be new too. This week of forgiveness is all about that. As you're being in the presence of God, as you're knowing the heart and mind of God, you're also revealing your heart and mind to God, and he's redeeming every minute of it. I was a little oppressed growing up as a child. As a, it's funny, isn't that when people say that? Growing up as a child, as if I could grow up as anything else, right? So anyway... As I was growing up, I was pretty oppressed. And you know what saved me? Having my own children. When all five of those little guys were running around my house and I kept looking at them with the eyes of love that I'd never known. Unconditional love. And and I would just go, huh, kids just do that. Who knew? I thought the things I did were bad because that's the script I bore. That being noisy and rambunctious was somehow bad and that made me bad and, you know, and all that. And then when I have my own kids, I look at them and go, well, I dearly love these children. I adore these children. Being around them just gives me joy and, and, and all that, right? And then I realized that that's just what kids do. <laughs> Paradigm shift. Anybody sleeping? Sound effects will do it every time. Comedians use their mics that way all the time. I did by accident. I mean, it was like a moment that was like a lightning bolt that just cut the old script off. I mean, if it was written on a scroll, then that was like tearing it off the toilet paper, right? I mean, it's just, here we go, new script. Kids just do things that can annoy adults, but they're just doing what kids do, and you're not a horrible human being because you happen to be one once. That was life-changing for me. Do you see how that's like what we're talking about today? Embracing God's forgiveness will do that for you. It begins by accepting forgiveness from Jesus Christ for just doing what you did because you didn't know any better. 
And the thing you need to understand about sin is that it's never about things. It's about relationships. Sin, sin could be quantified, and most people prefer it that way because it's easier to say, well, this is a sin, and that's a sin, and this is a sin. And, but, but sin is, is, like everything else with God, isn't that simple. It's about a relationship. Sin is about your relationship with God. Until you open yourself to a relationship with God, you're sinning against God. Until you're open to a relationship with other saved sinners like us, Christians, you're rejecting God. See, you can't reject another Christian without, in a sense, rejecting God because God paid the same penalty for each one of us here through his son, Jesus, for the same reason, which means I got nothing up on you and you've got nothing up on me. And so in order for me to live sinlessly, I know it's impossible in a sense, but it starts with loving yourself, loving God, and then loving each other. And eventually, it even leads you to loving those who have no relationship with God whatsoever and don't share anything in common with us. But for the love that Christ has put in you, you can't help having compassion for them, just as Jesus with compassion said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I'll wrap it up by saying this. In America, where we are rugged individualists and self-made women and men, we have a tendency to be very resistant to anything that suggests we're not in control, that we can't take care of it ourselves. And boy, if the last couple of years haven't taught you anything else, they should teach you that. And the really truthful thing is, is that us who are older, we remember a time when we thought we could lick anything, but our children are smarter than us because they've seen a time when there's all sorts of stuff that we can't control. We can't stop terrorists from knocking down buildings and killing thousands. We can't stop tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis. We can't stop them. We can't stop a solar wind that's supposed to do some damage at about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Go figure. We can't stop a crazy man in Russia from doing horrible things to people that are next door to him. We can't stop World War III if it decides to happen. There's not much we really have control over. So let's just take that as a sign that we can't save ourselves from the sin that separates us from God. And then embrace the grace of God that brings us the forgiveness that only God can give because only his son is worthy. He's the only one that can pick up the stone. He's the only one that can deep clean the crap under your couch, <laughs> right? <laughs> I just wanted to say crud, but the real thing in my head came out. So what? He's been trying to deep clean my mouth for decades and it's just marginally successful. The ones who work with me are all going, <coughs> you don't know the half of it. All I'm saying is that I had a church about 20 years ago where one of the workers there and I had a swear jar. <laughs> we bought pizza for the whole crew once in a while. That's all I'm gonna say. You can't forgive others until you learn to be forgiven and forgive yourself. You will stop judging others when you realize how badly you need a good judgment. Let us pray. 
Holy God, thank you. I pray that what's come has been inspired and filled with your Holy Spirit. And I invite those who have never accepted your grace to embrace it now. May healing come for those who need it especially. For the ones who have been like me, living by a script that they didn't write, but it's led to toxic and poisonous things in their lives that they don't want to do anymore. They don't want to feel anymore. They don't want to see or hear anymore. They want a new paradigm, Lord, and you are the only one who can give it to them. I pray that this happens right now, according to your perfect will. Amen.